Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 23 of Dermosphere, the podcast by self-distancing dermatologists <laughs> for self-distancing dermatologists and the self-distancing dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am an assistant professor in the University of Utah Department of Dermatology. And joining me, not in the same room, not even in the same state, is... <laughs> this is Michelle Tarbox. I am an assistant uh, no, dean of not. academic student. I mean, I, I, I had to adjust on the fly. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology and an assistant dean of medical student affairs um, at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas, which is overcast uncharacteristically right now, which is just making everything so much cheerier. You're always going to have to be an assistant of something in case you foul that up in the future. So this is our first episode where this whole pandemic quarantine thing is in full swing. Um, so hello, everybody who's being affected by it. I hope hope everything's all right. I think in our last episode, I said something along the lines of, I've never been worried about coronavirus. And then the next day, like the AAD got canceled and then things have just been becoming more of an avalanche ever since. So um, I'm a little bit worried about it now. And here in Utah, there was also an earthquake a few days ago from when we were recording now. So that's further stressed an already stressed population. So things have been fairly crazy, but mostly crazy emotionally and psychologically. Physically, most of the people I know are okay. So I hope that's the case for our listeners, too. Not that I want you to be emotionally stressed, but I want everybody to be okay. I hope this yeah. is coming through properly. <laughs> um, so speaking of um, the COVID epidemic, I wanted to just mention one or two things that I thought were pertinent to dermatologists. Michelle and I wondered if some of our listeners might be interested in what our institutions are doing. So we're both part of large official institutions we're not in private practice or anything so i suppose it might be different if you got to call the shots but we don't really get to call the shots i mean at least i don't michelle's an I mean, assistant dean no. of student affairs so I'm she could probably throw her weight around <laughs> she's very short though so there's not a whole lot of weight to throw around <laughs> so over the past couple of weeks we've basically been cutting back dermatology visits kind of gradually and then more and more so just as of last week, we decided, or the university, I guess, made the decision to basically that we should cancel or reschedule or perhaps do telemedicine, more on that later, any patient who's not urgent. And in dermatology, that's like 90% of people. So we've been calling people and rescheduling them and so on. And then this telemedicine thing, which was sort of moving very sluggishly before now, is receiving a shot in the arm. And apparently some of the HIPAA requirements have been relaxed so that we're allowed to do like a video visit with patients just through something like Zoom or Skype or FaceTime or whatever video software you have, even if it's not a HIPAA compliant platform, as long as you tell your patients about it, of course. So that's kicking into full swing um, the day this episode gets released. So wish us luck. What are you guys doing over there in Texas Tech, Michelle? We're trying to offer patients who would be potentially at higher risk, although the data for who are at risk with this particular infection keeps shifting. 
but um, we're offering them to reschedule their appointment if it's non-urgent. We're trying to start to implement telemedicine technologies and working on ways to make sure that patients don't end up with uh, the ability to contact us in the middle of the night because their Band-Aid fell off or anything like that without our without our express permission because that could be complicated. Um, and we are trying to figure out how to triage our most important, you know, medical necessity. We have started to cancel, of course, cosmetic treatments, but there's some patients that we worry that, you know, we are going to be better at taking care of them than, for example, the emergency room with like patients who have pyoderma gangrenosum or severe atopic dermatitis. And so we're just trying to make sure that we're doing our best part um, as a steward of medical supplies, but also of medical knowledge and trying to keep patients out of acute care settings, which may become overwhelmed in the short term. Lubbock is pretty isolated out there in the middle of West Texas, as I recall. Do you guys have any confirmed cases down there? We we do. We actually have seven. So um, I think Bummer. that I having... was thinking the rest of the world would fall apart and it would just be Michelle Tarbox leading the survivors across, <laughs> across a barren landscape full of well, ragtag gumption. <laughs> I feel like I do have a lot of ragtag gumption and, you know, I'm starting to learn some survival skills, I suppose, but the, uh, the international, um, the Lubbock international airport, it is called that. I'm not making that part up. Um, does receive flights coming in and out. And people are of course, um, attending the university here and going away for spring break and coming back. And so we are a little bit concerned that when we see those college kids coming back from their spring break, that we might have a bump in cases. Another thing that's perhaps relevant to dermatologists was brought up at one of our meetings uh, about a week and a half ago, which was that we might get a lot of patients who are on biologics and immunosuppressives asking us if they should stop them or decrease their doses or something. And there was an editorial in the JAD about this too recently, but it didn't really hit any firm conclusions just like we didn't. So uh, instead of reviewing that one directly, I thought I'd just mention what we discussed at our meeting, which is basically that we don't have the data, of course, to know for sure. It, one of our psoriasis experts who prescribes a lot of biologics said, the virus is pretty contagious. So if you come into contact with it, there's a decent likelihood you're going to get it, whether you're on a biologic or not. So you probably shouldn't tell people to stop their biologics because that would increase their risk of getting it. If they get the disease on a biologic, it might be worse. So you can tell them that. If And then again, this business of who's the most at risk. So as far as I can tell, it still looks like Older folks are more at risk for having a more severe disease course, especially if they have more comorbidities like diabetes. So if you have patients like that, then it's obviously a shared decision issue, but I would proceed with caution. I have pediatric dermatologists, so a lot of the patients I have on biologics are pretty young. So I say you should probably continue for now because, of course, we know the risks of going off your biologic or your immunosuppressive medication is that the dermatologic condition that you had that was severe enough to require those things in the first place could get bad again. And then we also know that if you stop your biologic, you're at increased risk of developing some kind of antibody for it so that it doesn't work as well if you start it up again the next time. So I think my general default is to tell people, just stay on it. If you happen to get the disease, then obviously stop it at that point. But if I had a particularly comorbid person, I suppose we might have more of a conversation about it. Yeah, and the dermatologist actually had an interesting sort of editorial piece about this also, where they discussed that there's no really reliable evidence that patients on biologics were at a meaningfully increased, re increased risk um, from SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, there is 
apparently some theoretical evidence that anti-TNF therapies or IL-17 inhibitors may improve outcomes during the cytokine storm-mediated pulmonary injury phase of the COVID-19 pneumonia. And there's even actually a trial going underway for the use of adalimumab or Humira for treating severe COVID-19 pneumonia. So for right now, we're not telling our biologic patients to stop their medication. Um, we are trying to limit the use of corticosteroids because that has been indicated as an early signal of potentially worsening prognosis, prolonging the duration of viral shedding and potentially um, being less helpful in the setting of the acute pneumonia. But it is, you know, of course, a constantly shifting um, like paradigm because I, I heard a very nice description of what we're doing. We're basically trying to build the airplane while we fly it right now um, as we deal with this disease that no one's ever dealt with before. And we're having to, you know, take the information as we can get it and learn and adapt in real time, which is a big challenge, but I think that we're all doing the very best that we can. So I'm advising my patients on biologics to, you know, continue their medication, but to stay appropriately cautious and to realize that while we don't know how their biologics might impact the virus itself, we know that the secondary comorbidities of the condition may be worsened by the um, biologics if they were to acquire a secondary bacterial pneumonia or something along those lines. That's interesting stuff. And uh, speaking of um, dermatology-related medication, apparently hydroxychloroquine has recently been being explored as a potential treatment option for people with bad COVID stuff. So they say, don't give it to people who shouldn't get it, which is kind of like, duh. But apparently some doctors might just be giving it to people as like prophylaxis against the disease. Um, don't do that. Just continue prescribing it to people who need it. Yeah, like poor lupus patients. Don't worry about them. So we couldn't do a podcast at this time in history without mentioning the coronavirus slash COVID-19 slash SARS-CoV-2. I also want to mention that a few episodes ago, we reviewed an article by Dr. Haynes Eli, who talked about how psoriasis could be related to leaky gut and other GI stuff. Interesting article, controversial for sure, but a different approach to psoriasis, and he died a few weeks ago, I think of prostate cancer. So we'll have a brief moment of silence for Dr. Eli. The good news, I guess, is that he missed all of this COVID stuff and doesn't have to worry about it. Um, but we'll pour one out for our colleague. <laughs> all right. We do have articles today, in case you were wondering if we were just going to jibber jabber at each other this whole time. No, we're reviewing articles just like we always do. <laughs> Because the world goes on, and I'm sure since you guys didn't get to go to AAD, you are so thirsty for this episode to be released, and you really want to hear about Calcofloor White. Well, <laughs> good news, my friends. We're going to talk about Calcofloor White. So our first article is from the JAD uh, from April 2020. So this one actually comes to us from the future, and it is called Rapid Detection of Fungal Elements Using Calcofloor White and Handheld Ultraviolet Illumination. So the problem is that KOH tests suck. And mm. it feels good to get that off my chest. Well, it did the first time I said it. Now it's just kind of old hat. But I was sitting around a group with uh, my fellow dermatologists. We have a, a group here at the University of Utah we call the Entrepreneurial Circle or Innovation Circle, where we try to sort of think of new stuff. And one of the things we thought of was that it's KOHs suck. They are kind of hard to perform, they're time-consuming, and I do not trust myself in interpreting them. And 
all of the other people sitting around were like, oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. I have a hard time interpreting them too. So we need something better. And um, perhaps this group out of Johns Hopkins has come up with one. So this article uh, is authored by George Denny and Anna Grossberg and colleagues from Johns Hopkins. And what they did was take this stain called calcifloor white, which I knew existed. It binds to the chitin of fungal cell walls. So that's potentially a testable question. Do we have our bell, Michelle? We do. There you go. Calcifloor white binds to the chitin of fungal cell walls, and then it fluoresces under UV light. So the idea here is that you scrape a sample of, like you were going to do for KOH just onto a slide, but you use calcifloor white instead of KOH. You still put it under your microscope, just like always, but then you get this UV flashlight and you sort of shine it, you hold it out with your hand and you shine it on the stage from sort of an oblique angle from the side. And then you look at it through the microscope still. And hypothetically, the calcifloor white should fluoresce and make it easier to identify positives and negatives. So this um, UV flashlight looks like it's basically sort of a woods lamp. The one they said they use was a 395 nanometer emitting LED flashlight, which costs $24 on walmart.com. <laughs> so what this group did was just what I said, scraped a little bit onto a slide, and then they treated it with KOH and with calc and then treated another sample with calcifloor white. So they got five positive samples of each and five negative samples of each, and then they took photos of them. Okay, and then they shared these photos with the faculty and residents at Johns Hopkins. And then they had them, it sounds like they shared them electronically, and then they used an online survey tool so the faculty and residents could respond with what was positive and what was negative. So they were correct with the KOH preparations in 90% of the time, and they were correct with the Cockafloor White 99% of the time. So people were pretty good overall. Uh, they did point out that cockafloor white recognition was faster, eight seconds versus about 18 seconds in identifying positives versus one versus the other. So I like the idea of something that's better. And by better, I guess I mean this appears to be more sensitive and faster. That's good. And maybe increases my own personal confidence in identifying them. I do wonder about like identifying something from a photograph is quite different than identifying it in real life on a slide. I remember we had these tests where we could, to see if we could identify KOH <laughs> preps that went around like in residency and stuff. And they were just pictures of like obviously positive preps and they were easy. Um, whereas doing it in real life is not nearly so easy. But it looks like this was a kind of a proof of concept because they say a nationwide follow-up study has been initiated. So having people just kind of do it themselves and then checking for concordance, I guess, might be considered some kind of gold standard. Yeah, I like calcifloor white. I think it's actually a very nice technique. And I like improvisational ways to use the technologies we already have. I think any good dermatologist needs to have a tiny bit of an ability to channel MacGyver in certain moments where you sort of have to piece together the tools that you have at your disposal to solve the problem at hand. So I like the idea of utilizing these little um, sort of UV wavelength flashlights as a light source. And I've actually personally used my dermatoscope light source as a light source for uh, utilizing a microscope when the bulb burned out. So, you know, I can see how this could work.
So if you already have some Calcaflor white lying around, you can maybe just use your woods lamp and try this technique out. Or if you want to buy some Calcaflor white, I bet it's pretty cheap. The flashlight is cheap. Give it a try, maybe. See if you like it. I like it. So I also like infectious diseases because I'm a dermatopathologist and we like to see bugs under the microscope. So my next article here is an article entitled Comparison Between Organismal Staining on Histology and Tissue Culture and the Diagnosis of Cutaneous Infection, a Retrospective Study. The chief authors are Sheila Shigani and Elisa Femia out of New York, New York. And this was published in the JAD in 2020. And the background was that in the instances of suspected cutaneous infection, the standard of care would include a skin biopsy for histology and for tissue culture, but few studies have compared the clinical utility of each test. And so they wanted to look at the concordance of results between tissue culture and histology, as well as the clinical pathological features that may correlate with or influence the diagnostic yield of each test. So they did a retrospective study of all patients who underwent skin biopsy for histology and tissue culture at NYU between 2013 and 2018. And they ended up with 179 patients that they assessed. 10% of these patients had positive concordance, meaning both their culture and their histology were positive for microorganisms. 21% had positive culture only, and 7% had positive histology only. They used a statistical measurement called the the kappa correlation coefficient. So the kappa correlation coefficient is a statistical measure of inter-rater reliability or agreement that's used to determine agreement between two raters um, so or two methods of correlation. Worthy, perhaps? I think it could be. There's a lot of statistics in this article, so get ready. Kappa um, correlation coefficient. Yes, a the kappa correlation coefficient. It's a measure of agreement. And they actually give a nice reference range. Um, and they liked the kappa correlation coefficient because it doesn't require a validated positive standard and we'll go into more detail about why that's important later. But um, there are ranges for this kappa correlation coefficient um, that demonstrate either no agreement, minimal agreement, weak, moderate, or strong agreement or almost perfect. So if you have a kappa correlation coefficient of 0 to 0.20, that means there's no agreement at all. If you have 0.21 to 0.39, which is where this study falls, that is minimal agreement. If it's from 0.4 to 0.59, it's weak. 0.6 to 0.79 is moderate. 0.8 to 0.9 is strong. And greater than 0.9 is almost perfect concordance between two raters. Um, and those can vary between, you know, statistical measures, two different pathologists, two different clinical assessors. It can be used for a lot of different things. Two different so, podcast hosts. Two different podcast hosts. That what read what would our CAPA correlation be? I mean, I feel like we agree with each other a lot, so I feel like we would be somewhere in the moderate range, I feel, at least. you know. Hopefully. I disagree. Oh, see, you just messed up our coefficient. It's all right. Taking it down. <laughs> so now we're down to just wimpy agreement. That's sad. Um, so they said minimal agreement there. So I guess we're down to minimal agreement. Um, the yes, histology... I agree. Okay, we're back up. How <laughs> fluid right. is this? I know, I know. The histology exhibited higher sensitivity for fungi, and the tissue culture was more sensitive to identify gram-negative bacteria. And this is one of several mini rants I'm going to have in this article. So tissue staining for bacteria with the brown brand protocol that most of us use is pretty decent for looking at gram-positives, which makes sense because they stain kind of a bluey purple color. The counter stain is yellow. 
and nuclei will stain red. Guess what color gram-positive bacteria also stain in this preparation? They also stain red. So it's very difficult to see the gram-negative bacteria on a brown bread stain, which is possibly one of the reasons why identifying gram-negative bacteria in histology was a little bit more difficult. Wait, um, the gram-negative, which color do the gram-negative stain? The gram-negative stain red. And the gram-positive stain this purple-blue. Bluey-purple. The bluey-purple is easy to see. Honestly, gram-positive organisms are easy to see on routine histology, not infrequently. But if you're looking for a gram-negative where the counter stain is yellow and the nuclei still stain red and the gram-negative organism stains red also, it can be more difficult to find. So I have a personal rant against the uh, tissue gram stain because it's hard to use. You uh, have a, a low kappa correlation I have, coefficient yes, a low with correlation the stain. With that Disagree stain. with it. Yes. Um, so antimicrobial use before biopsy led to fewer positive cultures, 37.5 versus 71% in patients not treated versus treated with antibiotics prior to the ob obtaining of the biopsy. And that's one of the points that they make in this article is that if possible, it is preferred to obtain both the tissue culture and the histologic biopsy prior to the commission of antimicrobial therapy. And so they did this study at a single institution that does somewhat limit its application. And they also pointed out there is a lack of a validi validated criterion standard to diagnose infection, which limited, limits the interpretation of the results. Right. There There's no gold standard for what really counts as infection. Right. It's all kind of assembling different factors, different pieces of evidence into a clinical picture. Uh, and I think in this study, they used like a final clinical diagnosis of infection yeah, as their goal. Their final clinical diagnosis, which was um, something that would, of course, have been made taking input from the culture results as well as the histology results. Uh, so tissue culture and histopathology often yielded discordant results. And they realized that there are specific limitations, but still high clinical utility in special circumstances of tests when approaching cases of suspected infection and wanted to highlight the different strengths and weaknesses of these different tests. So uh, going into a little bit more depth, they talked about how often when a patient presents with what is concerning for an infection, one of the first things people will do is to be, obtain a skin biopsy as well as tissue for a tissue culture. They also point out, as many studies will, that this is the first type of study that's looked at the data and the way that they're examining it. So they're actually looking at it um, both for concordance of the histology and the microbiological results, as well as trying to investigate the utility of these tests, classifying the infections by infectious organisms. So if they're looking at bacteria versus fungi. Um, they even included actually some parasites since they had some tissue diagnoses of leishmaniasis, which was fun. And so this was, a, like we talked about, a retrospective chart review. They did only uh, include biopsies performed by dermatologists. So they excluded any biopsies performed by non-dermatologists. They also excluded nail specimens, which I think was a prudent decision because we're really talking more about tissue here. And you don't usually, um, it's usually not a life or like a life or death situation when you're looking at a nail versus where it can be kind of significant when you're looking at tissue. So I think that it was reasonable to eliminate uh, those nail specimens. They also looked at biopsy size, um, which was a factor that they evaluated to see if it had any impact on tissue culture or histology. They classified the histology result as positive if an organism was visualized on dermatopathology and mentioned in the pathology report. And all of the specimens were also reviewed by a NYU dermatopathologist. 
They also noticed that a subset of biopsies with positive culture and negative histology results were independently re-reviewed by NYU dermatopathologists, but they were categorized according to their original read. And then they defined tissue culture result as positive if an organism grew on the tissue culture, excluding established contaminants such as coagulase-negative staph, chorinobacterium, bacilli, uh, propionobacterium acnes, clostridium perfringes, and uh, micrococcus as well as enterococci. They did make exceptions if the final diagnosis was like chorinobacterium pitted carotidolysis or something along those lines. And then they looked into the pre-biopsy differential diagnosis and final clinical diagnosis, which they then subdivided into two categories, either infectious or non-infectious. The infectious category included primary infection and superinfection and excluded viral infection. And a lesion was defined as clinically suspicious for infection if infection was listed as one of the top two differential diagnoses before biopsy. And this emphasizes a point that I try to emphasize with my resident, which is residents, which is that you should list your differential diagnoses um, for a specimen you're submitting for histology in the order of which you suspect the outcome to be true. So if you're most concerned that this is a non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection, that should be the first thing in your differential so that people prioritize their differential diagnosis. Um, they then give tables to show how the, de the data kind of is classified as well as um, what different cohorts have in common and what they have that, are, that is a little bit different. I think one of the interesting points here where they're classifying, you know, the age, gender, whether the patient's inpatient or outpatient and the type of the lesion. So for those specimens they had that were both positive for histology and tissue culture, um, they had a higher percentage of people who were inpatient. Um, so this, I think, would correlate with sicker patients. And they also had a higher percentage of patients for which the primary or final, uh, for the primary diagnosis was suspicious for infection. So actually, 100% of the samples that had positive histology and culture had a um, indication of a differential diagnosis of an infectious condition as the first or second element in their differential, which means, you know, these were highly clinically suspicious lesions for infection. And I think that that is something that we see over and over in dermatopathology, where there are some things that we kind of know what they are, and then the histology follows the rules, and the tests follow the rules, and everything falls in line. And those are usually more clear-cut. And the more nebulous something gets clinically, the more nebulous it becomes histopathologically. And sometimes even when you're looking at laboratory tests, it becomes more confusing. And I think that's because there are some things that really don't fit well into categories or haven't actually picked a category to belong to, like mixed connective tissue disease, where it has sort of mixed clinical findings, it has mixed histopathological findings, and even has mixed serological findings. So it doesn't surprise me that those patients, what they were like, this is infectious, and the patients had a specimen submitted, were more likely to have positive histopathology and culture. If you looked at the patients that had um, positive histology only, they had only a 66% percentage um, primary bi pre-biopsy suspicion of infection. And if you look at the ones that were positive on culture only, then they had a 43% pre-biopsy suspicion of infection. So again, sometimes I think that... Um, as clinicians, when we look at a patient presenting with their clinical picture, when we kind of like go, oh, this is a slam dunk, I know what this is, and it's going to you know, be an infection, we're going to be more likely to get a specific diagnosis because it is presenting in a more specific fashion versus something that's a little bit more nebulous and difficult to figure out. So they and it's then... the things that are nebulous that we tend to biopsy more. 
Yep, the nebulous things are going to, you know, that's when we start to pull all the levers and try to get as much information as we can to make a diagnosis. So, you know, do have some patience with your histopathologist. We are doing our best. Um, so then they talk about how they classified the tissues and um, the results and how they measured the concordance. So they separated them out as to either positive histology only, positive tissue culture only, and then with a Venn diagram show the overlap where they have both positive histology and culture versus both negative, and then looked at the concordance rates. And so they found that um, after separating these biopsies into those one of four groups, they were able to do descriptive analyses across the, uh, across the groups and cal calculate that kappa correlation coefficient, which they didn't find to be terribly reassuring. They did find eventually that 36% of their patients they were looking at were ultimately diagnosed with infection and that the histology and tissue culture results agreed in 130 biopsies, either being both negative or both positive. So there was 113 uh, specimens that had both negative culture and negative histology. And then there were 17 specimens that had both positive histology and both positive culture. So 130 total had a concordance between their histology and their culture results. So that's kind so of... So in including when they're both negative. Including when they're both negative, so which is a much greater So the overall concordance rate is like 70% or something. But the both positive was very small, like 10%. Both posit yeah, both positive was very small, about 10%. And so they then kind of looked at... Um, what changed the diagnosis and management of the patient. So they said skin biopsy with tissue culture resulted in a change of diagnosis, uh, diagnosis infectious to non-infectious or vice versa in 35.8% of the cases. And they also noted that they were um, more likely to have positive histology only with deep fungal organisms, which makes sense to me um, as a dermatopathologist because um, Fungi can sometimes be difficult to grow. They sometimes requ require very specific growth um, circumstances, either temperature or media. But utilizing the correct stain, you can visualize them pretty darned accurately. Um, one thing that I noticed looking over their data was that when they classified the types of histologic stains they were using, they seemed to favor... Uh, PAS with diastase over GMS stain. So uh, Gorkot Marie silver stain, which is the green stain with the black um, silver stain that we're kind of used to. So the green counter stain and the black silver stain that highlights the fungi, but also picks up things non-specifically like melanin granules and keratinocytes or inflammatory cells versus the PAS with diastase, which is much prettier to look at. Um, I personally prefer using a GMS, but my colleague that's a dermatopathologist who's also my chair who works with me uses a PAS with diastase. And I think it's just dependent on where you trained and what you like. Um, so if but, you were a resident, you might want to remember that GMS and PAS both stain fungal organisms. And GMS is a silver stain, um, which I, it, one positive thing about GMS over the PAS stains is that GMS can stain non-viable fungi more accurately than PAS. So that's one of the reasons that I like it, uh, because sometimes what we think we're biopsying is the active area of an infectious condition is actually not the leading edge where the 
active growth of the organism is occurring and those might, might be less viable fungi, which can also lead to discordance with culture results uh, against histology. If you have non-viable non fungi identified on a biopsy specimen and then there's no tissue growth, it would make sense. Um, so they also, like I said, they had a couple cases of leishmaniasis. Um, I think this is also bellworthy. So the culture media for leishmaniasis is Novi McNeil Nicole or NNN medium, which you can obtain from the CDC. Most people don't just have that readily on hand in their offices. Um, I remembered it when I was learning this for the board's purposes in that leishmaniasis is one of those infections I really didn't want to get. So I was like, no, no, no. So and uh, it for the <laughs> for the uh, Novi McNeil Nicole media that you can get from the CDC if you should need to culture leishmaniasis. However, leishmaniasis is very beautifully identifiable under the microscope. So I enjoy seeing it on histology specimens, not so much on patients because it's often an unfortunate situation when you see it on a patient. Uh, marquee sign. I yes, that. exactly. The marquee sign. Good job, Luke. I'm such a proud derm mama right now. Um, so in contrast, the majority of biopsies with positive concordance contained bacteria. So Staph aureus was the majority of their cases 11 out of 14. The positive tissue culture only group predominantly represented bacterial organisms, specifically gram-negative bacteria and polymicrobial cultures, which would suggest that tissue culture could be more beneficial for detecting gram-negative bacteria, um, which is fitting with my experience as a dermatopathologist because tissue gram stains are really difficult to use to pick up gram-negative bacteria within tissue. So I definitely agree with that particular situation. Um, they also had uh, biopsies that showed bacteria that have, weren't previously reported by the original dermatopathologist because they weren't considered to be contributory to the primary histopathologic process. And I see this happen too, not infrequently, where a person gets a biopsy of something, maybe it's an ulcer and they're trying to figure out if it's deep fungal or some kind of atypical mic mycobacterial infection or something. And the surface of the ulcer is colonized with gram-positive coxae like you would expect an ulcer to be colonized with. Um, those bacteria are still alive and can still grow in the tissue culture. So that can still produce a positive tissue culture. But as a dermatopathologist, you would probably rightly conclude that those bacteria are not the source of the pathogenesis for the tissue that you're looking at. And you may or may not mention it. So they talked about that might be a source of non-concordance there. Um, and then they also discussed the, um, I think, importance of the clinical input in uh, the kind of interpretation of the tissue and the fact that it's difficult to separate those two. So um, while we try to be objective as dermatopathologists, I think it is certainly possible for us to have our kind of lenses tinted by the clinical expectation, if that makes sense. So if somebody says, you know, I'm really concerned that this is an infectious microorganisms, perhaps um, I'm going to be looking for that organism more intently. Certainly, I hopefully wouldn't identify them incorrectly, but you want to be thoughtful about that. So one interesting finding was that immunosuppression and size of the biopsy did not decrease the yield of positive histology or tissue culture within the population. And that notably of their patients diagnosed with infection, 51 of them had follow-up data and the majority of those patients, 92%, showed improvement or resolution with targeted antibacterial or antifungal treatment. 
and four patients unfortunately died of severe systemic infection. Those were ecthyma gangrenosum and purpura fulminans, um, along with two cases of disseminated fungal infection. The interesting thing to me is ecthyma gangrenosum and purpura fulminans could both be caused again by gram-negative bacteria, which would be harder to detect on um, brown bren uh, stain for bacteria. So you have to think about that particular thing. And then they looked at the sensitivities and specificities for each test. Um, Which, again, the... are difficult because of this gold standard issue. Exactly. That's one of the things they bring up, that they had to utilize the final clinical diagnosis of infection as the criterion standard. And in their discussion, they actually point out that this use is actually inherently flawed because there's no independent method of validation to diagnose cutaneous infection. So... If you did look, though, at their um, sensitivity, which is basically your true positives, and they present a very nice table with actually the equations for all of these things. So I will ring the bell, reminding people that sensitivity is true positives divided by true positives plus false negatives. So basically all of your actual positive cases. And um, they noted that for tissue culture, their sensitivity was 0.5, and for histopathology, it was 0.38. So not amazing. But no, pretty bad. Yeah. But their specificity, which was much higher, and remember specificity is how good you are at detecting true negatives. And so the equation for that is true negatives divided by true negatives plus false positives. So all of the actual negatives. Um, and so that was 0.81 for tissue culture and 0.96 for histology. So that's pretty good. So if somebody said, no, there's no organisms on histology, it, they, they had a very high percentage chance of, of being correct that that was a true negative for that particular situation. Um, they also noticed a higher positive predictive value, 0 0.83 versus 0 0.59 for histology over tissue culture. And remembering that positive pre predictive value is the probability that subjects with a positive test actually have the disease. And they give the equation for that as well, which is true positives divided by true positives plus false positives. So in this setting, it's anything that you're identifying as a positive, whether it's real or not, is the denominator. And then they noticed that for the negative predictive value, it was 0.73 and 0.74, so pretty similar between tissue culture and histology there. So I thought that that was very interesting. They um, went further in their discussion to say that if you are worried about conditions that you know are gram-negative in origin, such as ecthyma gangrenosa, malacoplakia, or purpura fulminans, tissue culture may be more important. And if you're worried about deep fungal infections, it may be very prudent to obtain tissue for histology. So I think that that is very useful. Um, in my personal practice, the way we handle this kind of clinical presentation is if there's any way we can possibly do it, we prefer to get both tissue culture and histology prior to the commission of antimicrobial agents, which they emphasize would be the best approach as well, even though they notice that there are strengths and weaknesses of each and unique places where one would be more helpful than the other. And I think that that is probably your best practice. I think that the important points that come out of this article are that we are not good at detecting gram-negative bacteria on histology, and culture may be more important for that, that non-relevant superficial bacterial colonization by Staph aureus may be overlooked on histology, but may still result in a positive tissue culture. 
and that if you're looking for deep fungal infection, you may need to rely a little bit more heavily on the histology than on the tissue culture as it's more likely to have a positive histologic picture than a positive tissue culture. So I thought it, it illustrated nicely the utility of both. And um, I was, you know, overall pleased with how they presented the data. I thought it was also a nice reminder of how we calculate those important statistical measurements of sensitivity, specificity, and positive and negative predictive value. So how do you practice, Luke? I like to get them both if I have suspicion. And getting them both before antibiotics would be great, but it's not always within our control. True. I think it was nice to know that the size of the biopsy doesn't matter that much. So maybe yeah, I can go down to a three punch or like a bisected five or six. Because there's been some data that have recommended in other studies that we obtain more tissue, but often when you're dealing with like a chronic non-healing wound on a lower extremity of a medically morbid patient, you don't want to put too big of a hole there and be the reason why they have more of a wound that won't heal. So I think that that's a positive thing to take away from this as well. And, you know, kind of supports the way I think a lot of us aim to practice, of course, a lot of this happens before we're entered into the picture. So often we are consulted after the patient's been in the hospital on broad spectrum antimicrobials and, you know, interpretation can be more complicated. I actually have a patient that has had um, a very interesting clinical presentation with ascending nodules going up the arm after an outdoor exposure. And fascinatingly, this patient had been on antimicrobials when we did the biopsy. The biopsy showed uh, the biopsy actually showed atypical mycobacterial organisms, but then the culture grew sporotrichosis. So I sent it to the CDC, and the PCR showed atypical mycobacterial also. So I think that patient actually has co-infection. But this is a very adventurous outdoorsy patient. So if uh, you know anybody was going to get both of those things at the same time, it might be this person. So staying so, inside, you'll avoid coronavirus <laughs> and co-infection with atypical yes. mycobacterial sporotrichosis. Yes. You know, you and gotta... we also learned today that histology would be better for detecting me because I am a fun guy. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> All right. We're going to talk about something completely different. It's placebos and nocebos. This is a, more of a general medicine article that I thought was interesting and helpful for dermatologists as well as a number of other physicians. It's out of the New England Journal. And it's called Placebo and Nocebo Effects. And this is... Uh, the authors are Luana Koloka, who's an anesthesiologist and pain specialist, and Arthur Barsky, who's a psychiatrist. And this is, uh, they're from the University of Maryland and from Harvard. And placebo and nocebo, what's the difference? Well, they are effects of the positive and negative expectations that the patients have on their state of health. Placebo effects cause beneficial outcomes and nocebo effects cause harmful and dangerous outcomes. And the placebo effect is powerful. So they point out that in many double-blind clinical trials or treatments for pain or psychiatric disorders specifically, the responses to placebo are similar to the responses for active treatment. And if you're taking just a placebo as part of a clinical trial, 19% of adults report side effects from that placebo and 26% of elderly adults do. And one quarter of patients receiving placebo placebo in clinical trials discontinue <laughs> it because of side effects. Wow. So they're powerful things, and they can perhaps be used for good or evil. They do have a physiologic basis. So placebo effects have been linked to various neurotransmitters, and there's also apparently some genetic effect. So people have found some genes that might make you more or less likely to experience placebo effects. And regardless of how they're um, 
where their basis is. Expectations are important and that they can be acquired through several different mechanisms. So your expectations about what's going to happen could be from personal experience, like you've used topical steroids before and they didn't work. So now you don't think they're going to work again. They could be from observing somebody else. So, oh, my friend's baby went to the doctor and got triamcinolone and now they're better. So I'm getting triamcinolone. It'll probably work too. Or our favorite, of course, from being told what's going to happen. Here's a medicine for your psoriasis. It's going to work. Something like that. <laughs> this could also come from classical conditioning and therefore your expectations are sort of subconscious. So there was a study where they paired an immunosuppressive medication with a neutral stimulus in kidney transplant patients. And then eventually just the neutral stimulus alone decreased their immune system. Crazy, right? Mm -hmm. I think we could maybe leverage stuff like that. And that, that's stuff like this has also been used specifically in dermatology. So they talk about a study in psoriasis and they have patients um, in whom glucocorticoid doses were interspaced with placebo, what they call dose-extending placebo. And the relapse rates were similar to the rates among patients who received the full dose of glucocorticoids. And then a group of patients who underwent the same glucocorticoid regimen, but without the placebo, the relapse rate was three times as high as that hmm. receiving placebo. Uh, maybe because they got more corticosteroids and had more of a rebound effect or something, though. Hmm. So this can work for us or against us. And you can think of this as like self-fulfilling prophecies. So saying this drug will work makes it more likely to work. Saying this drug can cause sexual side effects <laughs> might give your patient sexual side effects. Mm -hmm. um, so in episode one, we discussed how finasteride doesn't seem to actually cause sexual side effects in a large group of men who are taking it for entergenetic alopecia. So ever since reading that article, I don't tell people about it anymore. <laughs> And also, if you tell people this is a placebo, and it's not a placebo, it's less likely to work. And some types of people are more susceptible to having the placebo effect. We mentioned the genetic um, issue, but there might be characteristics about a patient that you might identify, and you could think to yourself, huh, this person is more likely to have a placebo or nocebo effect, so I should tread carefully and keep the rest of this conversation um, with that in mind. So optimism and suggestibility not associated with placebo responsiveness. Interesting. But there is some evidence that people who might experience more side effects are people, um, sorry, the nocebo effect more likely to occur in people who are more anxious, have a history of medically unexplained symptoms, or have greater psychological distress. So the nocebo effect would suggest that um, if you tell them, well, there's a chance this drug's not going to work, it's even less likely to work for them. And you can posit all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. They also comment in this article, though it's not exactly related to the placebo effect, that patients do better, medically better, improved outcomes, if they perceive their physician as empathetic. So all of you who are listening who consider yourself a cool and cold and robotic human being, <laughs> you might try to ramp up the empathy. Um, and then side effects that a patient tells you about. This, again, is not really related to placebo effect, but I thought kind of interesting. So if a patient tells you they're having some kind of placebo effect or some kind of side effect, they might not actually be having a side effect. They might just 
want to tell you that they have some kind of concern, but it's more socially acceptable to tell you, yeah, this is giving me a headache like you said it would, rather than, you know what, I didn't really believe you that this drug was going to work, or I don't think you're a very nice person, or I think I'm worried about my disease. Um, so if you wonder about something like that with your patient, it might be nice to try to address that um, directly, like, oh, do you have other concerns about the medication or about this treatment course um, besides just this placebo or this side effect? I'm sorry. So with all of that in mind, I was hoping their conclusions were going to be like, we should just tell patients this medicine works. It has no side effects. Go home and use it. <laughs> but maybe that would have flown 50 years ago, but now we're supposed to be all non-paternalistic and stuff. So they say that one way to capitalize on placebo effects in a non-paternalistic manner in order to enhance therapeutic outcomes is to describe treatments in a realistic yet positive way. So this is part of the whole framing effect. Like instead mm -hmm. of saying 20% of the time this drug doesn't work, you say 80% of the time this drug does work. So provide them with the real answers to things, but frame it more positively. I feel like one way I do this is with isotretinoin. So patients with isotretinoin have to fill out this form and go through this booklet that has all these stop signs on it and read about all mm -hmm. these scary side effects. So I try to tell them, you know, we have to do this because of the program. It sounds worse than it is. Most people do really well and that kind of thing, which I feel is accurate, mm -hmm. but hopefully um, leverages this placebo nocebo thing as well. Yeah, and I think that talking about our more recent data through the meta-analysis that looked at mood and um, the effect of isotretinoin therapy on patients with severe acne is also helpful to discuss with these patients because I do feel like sometimes we're setting ourselves up for failure. You're giving like a group of moody teenagers a medication and be like, this is going to make you moodier. It's like, oh, we're not setting ourselves up for a bad situation or anything. I think that's similar with the whole question about does finasteride cause sexual dysfunction in men? I think that, you know, if you told some some male patients that eating green M&Ms would give them sexual dysfunction, they would potentially suffer sexual dysfunction from green M&Ms. It's a very psychological part of our human function. So I think that... But we all you know, remember from high school that green M&Ms do the opposite. <laughs> I forgot that's why that popped in my head. That's funny. Oh, my God. Ah. Oh memories <laughs> sorry i completely derailed you there but it was it's worth it good. that was pretty good that was pretty good awesome so um yeah i like i like framing things positively though um i also think that we can honestly say for patients you know i think this is going to be a very beneficial medication for you and i really think it could help you and i mean i think that after an appropriate discussion of you know benefits versus risks looking at the individual patient because you're choosing to put your patient on that medication for a reason usually you know and usually we're picking so. it because we think it's the best treatment for that patient at that time with that condition. So I think it's not unrealistic to state to them, I really think this will be a good choice for you. And I think that it could really help you might set them up and frame them for better success. I like that. There's some yeah. research that shows that patients don't really respond much to data anyway. So making it more personal, I can see that being effective. Yeah. Another way you could potentially leverage this is to prescribe a placebo for your patient and tell them it's a placebo. <laughs> so this apparently is called the open label placebo approach. 
You give them a real drug as well, but you also give them a placebo. And you say, truthfully, that the addition of a placebo has been shown to enhance the beneficial effects of active drugs. So you could say, uh, here's some methotrexate, and then here's also a Tic Tac. <laughs> Research <laughs> shows that if you take them together, they work better. Apparently that's true. Your magical minty Tic Tac. And then there's, we're almost done here with this article, but one interesting bit I thought was the potential implications of placebos and nocebos in therapeutic trials. So if any of our listeners are responsible for designing therapeutic trials, this might be worth considering. So they say, when feasible, clinical trials should include a no intervention group to account for confounding factors related to placebo and nocebo effects. So in this case, you'd have patient on group of patients on active drug, group of patients on placebo, and then a group of patients where you just do nothing and just keep an eye on them. And that can help sort out what's placebo and what's not, like there's regression to the mean business and stuff like that. And they also point out that the design of some trials might enhance a placebo effect, like a crossover design. So the group of patients who are on active drug at the beginning and then transitions to placebo are probably still doing better because they had been on active drug, and so that's where their expectations are. And they also point out that the people who collect data on side effects should be blinded not only to who's on placebo and who's on active drug, but blinded to the side effect profile. So if there's a known side effect profile, rather than having like a checklist of just the seven things this drug is known to cause, having a more extensive list where the patient just tells you um, can help sort out what's really going on potentially. I like it. So um, speaking of things that have also been placebo controlled, um, we can now talk about botulinum toxin, pharmacology, and injectable administration for the treatment of primary hyperhidrosis. Uh, this is an article by Sherry Naraki and Jisun Cha out of, I'm going to try, Piscataway, New Jersey, New Jersey, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, Department of Dermatology, and... Piscataway and Thomas Jefferson University Department of Dermatology in Philadelphia. And this was a review article published in the JAD in 2020. And they wanted to look at hyperhidrosis, which they highlight as a dermatologic condition that can be defined by excessive sweating beyond the thermoregulatory needs of the individual with significant effects on the patient's quality of life. And there's so much pimpable content in this article, so get ready for the bell. All right, so first bell. Um, it can be categorized as primary or secondary, with primary hyperhidrosis being focal and idiopathic, uh, versus secondary hyperhidrosis, generalized and often caused by underlying medical conditions or uses of medications. Uh, various surgical and non-surgical therapies exist for primary hyperhidrosis. Botulinum toxin, although it is one of the deadliest toxins known to humanity when used in small doses, is also one of the most effective therapies for primary hyperhidrosis and um, is often an important treatment option once topical treatment strategies have failed. So they wanted to look over the commercially available botulinum toxin formations, their applications in the treatment of primary hyperhidrosis, and their you know, advantages and disadvantages. So um, they talk first about how prevalent hyperhidrosis is in society, and its prevalence ranges from less than 2% in Israel to all the way up to 38% in India. Um, they give multiple different countries numbers. They say 12% in Canada, about 12 and like 12.8% in Japan, almost 15% in China, 16% in Germany, 
Brazil, 20%, 4.8% for most of the U.S. population based off of a 2016 online survey. 38% and, in India. Well, I mean, some of that I wonder also if that's related to the consumption of, like, so if, you're, if you've ever been to India when it's hot and you're at a social event, you actually are given, like, hot tea or hot coffee to help you sweat to cool you off. Um, and also, if you've ever you know, eating a lot of amazing Indian food, some of the spice level for at least a lot of people will make them sweat. And then also if you think about the general climate, I don't know if that's playing a role because obviously if you're hot and you have hyperhidrosis, the heat doesn't make things any better. So I wonder if there's not some climate playing a role there. But regardless, it is a significant problem in any society in which it occurs. And it doesn't seem that really anybody's immune from this. It does tend to usually be bilaterally symmetric and excessive and not derived from known medical conditions when it's primary hyperhidrosis can affect the axillae, palms, soles, craniofacial regions, and can disturb the quality of life. Um, so primary hyperhidrosis accounts for 93% of all hyperhidrosis cases. And um, a little bit of a bell situation here because the diagnosis is made when excessive sweating lasts for more than six months and includes two or more of the following characteristics. So occurs more than once per week. The presents in patients younger than 25 years of age at first presentation. Family history exists. Sweating is bilateral and symmetric. Sweating ceases while asleep. And sweating severely affects the patient's daily activities. I think that ceasing while it's asleep speaks to other systemic causes of um, hyperhidrosis, such as patients who might be experiencing that due to hormonal imbalances, different kinds of infections, different kinds of elevated levels of cir circulating inflammatory markers. Uh, importantly, PHH should be diagnosed after possible cases of secondary hyperhidrosis have been excluded. And 90% of cases of primary hyperhidrosis affect the axilla, palm, soles, or craniofacial regions. There are lots of non-surgical treatments, antiperspirants, antiontophoresis, anticholinergics, laser or ultrasonography, microwave thermolysis, or radiofrequency treatments, as well as surgical treatments such as excision of subcutaneous tissue, subcutaneous liposuction curatage, where you actually use the liposuction uh, trochanter to like trochar to pull on the undersurface of the epidermis and you're sort of scraping off the um, sweat glands or endoscopic sympathectomy. All of these are different ways that the, the um, hyperhidrosis can be treated. It is usually used, um, Botox is usually used as a second line treatment once topical strategies have failed. And patients do tend to be pretty pleased with their treatment with Botox. 93% satisfaction of um, patients treated with Botox versus placebo. So that study I looked into, that's interesting. Like, have you ever, if you've ever treated somebody for hyperhidrosis with Botox injections, you know, it is a lot of shots and it requires a highly motivated and relatively mature patient to undergo that. Um, the thought of going through all those little pokes with a placebo was kind of like, whoa, to me a little bit. <laughs> but they, interestingly, they said 30% of patients who had injections with placebo were satisfied with their treatment. So I thought that, you know, that kind of points back to that placebo effect there. We should just um, tell people that waving our magic wand over their hand will make them better. Right. So satisfaction with Botox treatment is significantly higher than with other non-surgical treatments. Um, they had another survey that was done of 1,985 patients with primary hyperhidrosis showing that 87% were more satisfied with Botox and least satisfied with antiperspirants. 
So it's something that patients really like. Um, they've actually also tried iontophoresis with Botox supplemented medium. So actually putting Botox into the iontophoresis medium, which has shown better anhydrotic results than iontophoresis with saline medium alone. And then here comes a little bit more pimpable content. So just so that y'all remember, um, Botox is a deadly toxin. It has a median lethal dose of 0.1 to 1 nanogram per kilogram. And Botox is produced by spore-forming broad-shaped anaerobic neurotoxigenic bacterial species from the Clostridium genus. There are seven Botox serotypes, Botox A through G. And this is kind of a fun way to remember this. So bot Botox um, A, B, E, and F are toxic to humans. Botox C and D are toxic to animals, so like cats and dogs, if you want to remember it that way. C and D, cats and dogs, I get mm -hmm. it. And then A, B, E, and F. So like Abe is kind of like a person's name. I don't know where the F comes from. Um, those are toxic to humans. That's his last initial, obviously. Yes, Abe F Botox. I like that. Well, what about G? Abraham F Botox. That's really cute. They don't really talk too much about that one, but that is... Not toxic um, to anybody. I Probably in there somewhere. Or but. gorillas. <laughs> so Botox blocks cholinergic innervation at the neuromuscular junction of smooth and striated muscle, as well as autonomic innervation of sweat, salivary, and tear exocrine functions. And then they go a lot into the mechanism of Botox. Let's just remind people that it actually prevents docking and excess cytosis of acetylcholine from presynaptic vesicles at neurosecretary and neuromuscular junctions by cleaving the soluble N-ethanolamide-sensitive factor attachment protein receptor, which is also referred to as a snare. Um, this and is it's, probably bell-worthy. It is bell-worthy. Are we still riding the last bell? I know. I'm like, how often do I bell? Um so the damage Botox caused by Botox clips snare protein so that the vesicles cannot diffuse out into the synapse. Yes. And so the damage caused by Botox is reversible. Um, what's interesting is that the, re the reversion of it actually occurs due to nerve sprouting and regeneration of synaptic junctions, which is pretty cool. They actually go over the specific timeline of the damage caused by Botox um, where they demonstrate that it blocks vesicular acetylcholine release for three days, and then they get transitory sprouting of nerves from the presynaptic nerve uh, of the paralyzed end plate trying to kind of appear to um, increase the number of acetylcholine receptors. They get new junctions forming, and then after seven days, 20% of previous neuronal activity is restored with fully functional synapses restored within three to six months. And then the temporary neuronal sprouts regress. So those extra little nerve sprouts that came out to kind of deal with the temporary inhibition caused by Botox go away eventually. So you don't say you don't stay hyper reactive or anything like that. Um, yeah. very interesting. So what's other interesting other interesting facts are that while the skeletal muscle contractions are inhibited for three to four months, inhibition of sweating, and I'm gonna bell for this, with that autonomic cholinergic nerve terminals can last for six to eight months. So they actually found that it was suggested that Botox reduced sweat gland responsiveness to acetylcholine in addition to inhibiting neurotransmitter release from cholinergic nerves. And repeated Botox injections may increase the duration of symptomatic relief. So a lot of um, studies have actually shown that you can treat patients well two or three times a year for continuous therapeutic effect. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, um, we did. Uh, we reviewed another article about its cosmetic effects being long-lasting, if you get them a lot. If you, if you get them regularly. So another little bell here for the different types of Botox 
that are available. So there are currently four Botox A and one Botox B preparations by the US FDA for different therapeutic and cosmetic purposes. So there's onabotulinum toxin, which is the, you know, big boy in the whole business, which is Botox. That, so that's onabotulinum toxin A. Abobotulinum toxin A is dysport. Incobotulinum toxin A is zeamin. And probobotulinum toxin... Wait, that's probotulism. Pra, pra, well, hold on. Probotulinum toxin. Okay, I was like putting an extra bow in there. So probotulinum toxin is um, Jovu. And then remobotulinum toxin B is myoblock. So and that one bo- does not act on snare proteins, as I recall. It does not. It acts actually, if you kind of um, remember the B in there, it sort of helps you remember that it's synaptobrevin and vamp that it acts on, which is kind of fun. We'll get to that in a second, though. Um, so onobotulinotoxin A Botox is the only one that's actually been FDA approved for the treatment of axillary hyperhidrosis. The different botulinum toxins are obtained from specific bacterial strains. So the Hall strain is for botulinum toxin A, and the Bean strain is for botulinum toxin B. So um, I'm probably dating myself here, but one of my favorite shows growing up was The Kids in the Hall. I think um, it's a very funny show. Uh, So I think that that was kind of funny. And then Mr. Bean was also a funny show that people watched growing up. So like the Hall ones are Botox A, and then Bean is Botox B. Anywho. So um, they also talk a little bit about the excipients in Botox preparations, including so- sucrose, sodium chloride, or lactose, which are added to maintain protein com- conformation as well as human serum albumin to minimize waste during lyophilization to prevent protein aggregation on the vial walls. And then they talk a little bit about how they're prepared. So both um, abobotulinum toxin A and incobotulinum toxin A are freeze-dried, whereas onobotulinum toxin A and probotulinum toxinate that's so hard to say jovu is um vacuum dried and then this would be a good pimping question so I'll... so um the rhymobotulinum toxin b is actually a liquid with a ph of 5.6 so it stings a little bit when you inject it and that's the one that's used more by like neurologists and yeah. physiatrists for it's... like tonic contractors and things exactly that's used a little bit in a different group of people but they do point out later in the article that people who have antibodies that block to botulinum toxin a would retain their responsiveness to botulinum toxin b so that's a theoretical possibility in those patients then they also talk about the shelf life of the different um, botulinum toxins so abobotulinum toxin a uh stable for 24 months that is disport um on a botulinum toxin a and which is Botox and rhymobotulinum toxin B, which is myoblock, stable for 36 months, stored at four to eight degrees Celsius. And then incobotulinum toxin A, which is zeomin, stable for at least 48 months at room temperature. So zeomin or incobotulinum toxin A, one, one of the more sturdy versions of this whole situation. Um, they also talked about the fact that the FDA guidelines recommend reconstitution in non-preserved saline. However, most people don't use non-preserved saline because in 60% of cases, that's going to cause more in, more increase in, in pain. And um, most people will actually use the benzyl alcohol containing saline for its anesthetic effects. They've also used lidocaine, which has also been beneficial. And then you can freeze it or store it safely in a refrigerator for four weeks. And they emphasize that one Botox vial can be used for multiple patients. 
I think is important um, to remember. So the rhymobotulinum toxin B, the myoblock, has a quicker onset of three to five days, but a shorter efficacy period of only nine to 16 weeks compared to botulinum toxin A. And as we spoke of earlier, it's low pH of 5.6 causes pain at the injection site. So that's with myoblock. Uh, myoblock is also correlated, that rhymobotulinum toxin B, with um, more dry mouth, headaches, corneal irritation, accommodation difficulties, and changes in sensory or motor functions in the hand than treatment with onobotulinum toxin A. But there isn't cross-reactivity, like we said. So if you lost response to botulinum toxin A, then you could use botulinum toxin B and vice versa. There's a nice um, table in the article comparing all of these. So if our residents uh, want to have that available for study or something, it might be worth looking at. Yeah, this is on page um, 972, and I already put a star on it as a poll for pimping content because I like to do that to keep my residents on their tippy toes. We've uh, already so been through 971 pages of this article. Wow. I'm <laughs> sorry, I know this got along. Okay, so to sum up, um, they then talk about how we treat patients with uh, botulinum toxin to help with hyperhidrosis. Uh, they have a very specific mechanism they uh, advocate for using with the needle at 30 to 45 degrees to the skin surface with the bevel up to prevent liquid, liquid leakage. Um, and then going for the dermal epidermal junction so that you're best treating the eccrine gland. And there's a lovely figure, and it's called figure one here on page 973, showing you how to use that. They emphasize that while often there's correlation with the hair bearing area for hyperhidrosis, it is not always perfect. So you can do the minor, also known as the starch iodine test, or you can use something called the Poncel red staining, which is a diazo acid dye that's also um, used in Western blots. That's a nice red color. So you can use that if your patient's iodine sensitive and you shouldn't do the iodine test on them. They emphasize also that hyperhidrosis on the feet can go up the sides of the feet. And then they talk about how you actually do the injection, which is usually 0.1 to 0.2 mLs of liquid. And you have different dilutions that you can use with um, onobotulinum toxinate between 1 to 10 milliliters of dilutant, uh, dilutant with uh, in 100 units, uh, although most people use 2 to 5 milliliters. Do you do any um, botulinum toxin for hyperhidrosis? I haven't, but I have a patient who's very motivated, and she's a teenager, and it's on her hands, which I'm Oof. told is very painful. It so is very I guess painful. we'll see how motivated she really is. Yes. And we um, just got it approved. So I guess I'm going to once this coronavirus thing blows over. I usually do 5 mLs of diluent into the 100 unit vial of botulinum toxin because that gives me then um, enough to do 50 injections of 0.1 mL, which would equivalent to like two units per injection site. And so usually that's enough to distribute over the surface area of like an axilla or something with 25 um, individual injection size. But they talk about how you can do that. Uh, and so they say the hands really hurt. And they talk they about do. nerve blocks and stuff. Yes, do I need to do, do a nerve block for this patient? I mean, it depends on your patient. Um, so they talk about the volume or the amount used to treat each patient. Usually axillas are treated with 50 units each. Um, and they talk about doing 10 to 15 sites in the axilla. I usually do a little bit more than that. Um, when you're doing them on the hands, they did speak to the relatively significant discomfort that can happen in the hands. Um, usually people are using 75 to 100 units per hand. You have to be careful because you can cause at least temporary compromise of hand strength. So hand weakness can last for 24 to 72 hours. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily be too worried about that, but it can sometimes persist for up to two weeks. And usually grip strength is okay, but the thenar eminence can be affected. So pinch strength is weakened because it uses your thenar muscles. 
Um, so don't about, do a bunch of Botox for hyperhidrosis before you're going to like make pizza dough or something. Yeah, or, or like try to win a thumb wrestling match or something like that. Um, so they talked about cryoanalgesia, which I think is just ice. Um, Iontophoric administration of 2% lidocaine, which I thought was a novel idea. Um, they talked about using, you know, vibration anesthesia, topical anesthetics, or even IV regional sedation. Uh, or anesthesia, um, it can be really painful. Like, I think that it's the hardest thing for patients to tolerate. Plantar hyperhidrosis takes even more Botox, 100 to 200 units per foot, which is a lot. So um, much. Injected 15 to 50 sites. Also very painful. Usually you have to do similar pain type measures and walking difficulties can last for several hours, um, especially if you had to do a nerve block. And they also noted that the anhydrotic effect um, is not as as uniform with plantar Botox. So um, 20 patient, 20% of patients in one study treated with plantar Botox for hyperhidrosis reported lack of any beneficial effects after treatment. But 80% of patients did get better. Exactly. It's all about the framing. Uh, they also talked about craniofacial hyperhidrosis. Um, where you may treat the forehead, the frontal hairline. If you did that area only, it'd be 50 to 100 units of Botox. If you did the forehead and the scalp boundaries, 200 units. And if you did the forehead and the entire scalp, some patients do have very sweaty scalps, um, you could use 300 units. And they recommend usually here using high concentration um, to limit diffusion because they, you know, if you dilute it more, it's going to diffuse more and you might in, in inadvertently paralyze some of the facial muscles. And they did talk about stopping before you got too low on the forehead so you didn't cause too much brow asymmetry, which could still happen. The neutralizing... So what if I just want to get Botox on my scalp so my scalp doesn't sweat and mess up my hair? I mean, you could do it. I don't know if you could get it to be covered by insurance and it's a lot of shots in your scalp. But if you were going to do your whole scalp, sounds like it would take about 200 to 300 units. So here's another little um, pimpable content. If patients get neutralizing antibodies, it is usually to the um, Botox 150 kilodalton core, and that can block pharmacological activity, but fortunately these are rare between 0.3 and 6% of treated patients. Uh, they noted that patients who got axillary treatment had a low percentage, 0.5% of developing neutralizing antibodies. And uh, I think that that's kind of favorable. Uh, they did also note that Botox B injections are more immunogenic than Botox A preparations. Of course, you don't want to use this for patients who have contraindications if they're pregnant or breastfeeding, if they have neurologic conditions that might compromise their treatment, or if they have blood clotting. So I think a lot of pimpable content in that article. Um, in my personal experience, the patients who have been the most satisfied and who have come back the most frequently and who've really sort of related to the treatment is sort of life-changing are the patients who you treat for axillary hyperhidrosis. I've had some patients I've treated for palmar hyperhidrosis that feel like it's worth the discomfort, but it is very painful. I'll, I'll say I've had one or two patients that I've treated once or twice for plantar hyperhidrosis. It seems to be the treatment that is the most difficult to tolerate and also maybe the least high yield for a lot of people. So one of the techniques they mentioned about decreasing pain when injecting the palms is frequent needle switching. Yeah. And which I is probably going to be what I'm stuck with because I've never done a nerve block on somebody's hand before. I don't think I feel comfortable doing that. You do a beer block, but I mean, it's kind of complicated. She's not drinking. She's not even 21 yet. Oh, uh, you know, that's not what I meant. That's funny, though. 
So uh, interesting article. I think that they did a good job of going over the pathogenesis of like hyperhidrosis as well as the pharmacology of how the different Botox, um, different um, preparations work. So you know that a beer block is spelled B-I-E-R. And that's... I do now. (laughs) Okay, but you have to be careful because you you can potentially compromise the palmar arch. So that's one of those things where you have to do the kind of test to make sure that they have good preservation of their circulation, even if you uh, mess up one of the branches of their circulatory system in their hand. So Maybe I could just give the patient a bunch of B-E-E-R and see if I'm that thinking, helps. Maybe if you consent them first. I'm not sure what the ethics on that would be. All right. So what is your next article? Uh, my next article is about how we have failed to prevent atopic dermatitis. So it is called skin emollient and early complementary feeding to prevent infant atopic dermatitis and the um, acronym for that study is prevent at all colon a factorial multi-center cluster randomized trial this is out of the lancet and it's got a huge group of people who are involved but the senior author is listed as this is all Scandinavian names so I apologize oh, no. for mispronouncing them Havard Ove Skirvin and the senior author is listed as Karen C. Ludrup Carlson, something along those lines. So this publication um, is part of a big study called the Preventing Atopic Dermatitis and Allergies in Childhood. Prevent ADAL, so prevent A-D-A-L-L, atopic dermatitis and allergies. The background is that a couple small studies around 2014 showed that if you slathered moisturizer on babies every day, then you could reduce the incidence of atopic dermatitis. So greasing them up every day, um, if they're, quote, high risk, meaning they have some kind of family history of atopy, um, you had you maybe prevented some atopic dermatitis. So that was exciting. And then there was also some thought that I, I had this thought in fellowship that maybe doing that could even reduce the risk of allergies and asthma, because if it's the skin barrier that's disrupted and the allergies get in through the skin and then you become allergic that way, then restoring the skin barrier and preventing that whole thing from happening, maybe you can reduce allergy and asthma. That would be exciting, mm-hmm. but it doesn't turn out that it works. Dang. Uh, this particular study had about 2,400 newborn babies in Norway and Sweden, and they were randomized to four groups. One group was the skin intervention group, which was oil bath additives and facial cream okay so not a moisturizer that you put all over your body just this bath additive thing but cream on the face and one group was a diet intervention which was early introduction of milk wheat and egg and another group had both they did the skin stuff and they did the diet stuff and then a fourth group had nothing um and the parents had to do the stuff so do the bath additives and the facial cream at least four days per week sort of that was the rule and then those as i said the bottom line here is that it didn't work about eight percent of babies had atopic dermatitis at one year of age regardless mm-hmm. so one of the things that i was most bemused by until i finally figured it out was why they used bath oil instead of doing like a nice thick cream or even petrolatum or something on these babies They point out that bath additives have been prescribed for many years in infants and young children as additional treatment for dry skin and eczema. I've never prescribed bath additives. I don't really think they work. 
Um, so that doesn't explain it. And they say, despite few studies that address assessing its efficacy. So then I thought, oh, maybe they want to finally address its efficacy. They do point out a randomized clinical trial of 480 children with eczema that showed no benefit of bath oil emollient additives. Okay, so mm -hmm. that doesn't explain why we're using it in this study. Um, in they do point out that skin intervention using concentrated emollient additives should improve the skin barrier because there's been studies that showed that a transepidermal water loss is decreased if you add a little bit of oil in the water. Okay, so we're at least reducing transepidermal water loss. But really, I've decided that why they use bath oil is because there is another big study that's assessing this slathering with cream kind of approach. Um, and that is called the Barrier Enhancement for Eczema Prevention, or BEEP, study, <laughs> um, which was also just published last month in The Lancet. And I think we might be reviewing that one in a future episode. But spoilers are that, unfortunately, it didn't work either. Really disappointing. Um, in this particular study, they had flasks of bath oil that were produced specifically for this trial, which consists of, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, paraffinum liquidum and trilorith 4 phosphate. Um, so don't go buy any of that stuff, I guess, because it didn't work. <laughs> so parents kept diaries of when they did all this stuff, and the authors describe, quote, full adherence was an average of doing it 3.5 days per week in 16 of the 25 weeks that they were studied. Okay, so they told them to do it four days per week. They kept diaries and they considered you to be fully adhere, not if you actually did it four days a week, but if you did it on average three and a half days per week in 16 of the 25 weeks, which is, you know, already a pretty, pretty liberal di definition for full adherence. And mm -hmm. they said that the people who are fully adhere, there were 27%, 27% of people were fully adhere to this. Uh, so it was 44% to each of the bath oil and facial cream individually. But the people who did the bath oil and the facial cream, an average of three and a half days per week and 16 out of 25 weeks, after being told to do it four days per week every week, um, were only 27%, which is discouraging <laughs> and they point out that this degree of adherence probably reflects real life settings including the fact that they were in a study with highly educated highly motivated parents in whom adherence patterns are presumed to be no lower than in a general population this is discouraging overall they say when planning the study we assumed that bathing the baby for most days of the week as well as introducing foods from the family's regular diet would not be too demanding. However, our study proved otherwise for a large part of the study population, suggesting that any additions to regular infant care are challenging. Um, which is true, and it makes me wonder how often the parents I instruct about taking care of their kids with eczema are actually doing the things that I suggest. Now, this study is for preventing atopic dermatitis, not treating it. So you can't say from the results of these studies that the bath oils don't help if you actually have eczema. Though it looks like there was another study that said that. Um, but remember, this is specifically for preventing eczema. And it, neither the early food introduction or the bath oil stuff worked. They do say that there were no safety sort of danger spikes in anything. So it's not like they were causing problems with the bath oils, at least. 
It's an interesting article. Like, I was interested to see the outcome of this because I actually had uh, one of my teachers that I worked with in my dermatologic upbringing that um, was quite a fan of a product called Robathol, which is made by the same company that makes the Vanacream products. And it's actually cottonseed oil. So being a native, being well, not a, I'm not a native West Texan, I'm a native Albuquerquean because Albuquerque is strange. But um as a person who's been a long-term resident of Texas, cottonseed oil I find interesting as a useful um, emollient. So it's cottonseed oil with uh, basically polyether, poly, polyether alcohol, so not a whole lot of ingredients in it, really no fragrance, um, and it's not terribly expensive. I'll say that my patients that li- that use the robathol tend to like it. Um, it's a little bit messy, and you have to be careful because it makes the tub slick, so they have to have some kind of either the little sticky mat or the little like rough stickers to produce traction so people don't fall in the bathtub. But some people do like it. So I was wondering if it was going to be that oil, but it doesn't sound like the same composition. Um, I would like to, you know, see if potentially if you could get patients to use those things a little bit more consistently, if it would help in management. But it's all just it's all a game of protecting the barrier, really. And however you can get patients to do it. I think people like the concept of a bath oil because it's one less step. Like, you don't have to, like, dry the kid off, chase the kid down, put lotion on him, you know, more of a challenge. Yes. Though it sounds like snake oil would be just as effective. Uh... <laughs> oh, my so, God. as an aside, as a pediatric dermatologist, I see lots and lots of kids with eczema, and, and almost all of them, I think... One of the most important aspects of their care is to bring them back for follow-up quickly, mostly so that I could see if they're doing the things I suggested. So I bring almost everybody back in a month. And if they look great, it's almost always because they did the stuff that I suggested. And if they're not doing well, it's because they're not. And there's various reasons why they're not. So they might not have heard it or lost the instructions or decided it wasn't a good idea or their life got too busy because as we just learned, taking care of an infant is already challenging. So adding stuff in addition to your regular care just is unlikely to happen. But I think bringing people back quickly is an important part of taking care of little kids with eczema. I like it. Speaking of little kids with eczema, so I have our last article. It's a short one. It is an opinion piece out of JAMA Dermatology written by Peter Leo uh, called Considerations in Weaning or Withdrawing Dupilumab Therapy, Nothing is Forever. Uh, So it talks about how dupilumab made its entry into the scene in 2017, and it heralded a new era in the treatment of atopic dermatitis, increasing the bar for quality of life measures, as well as um, more stringent uh, criteria for improvement. It was studied initially for 52 weeks at continuous dosing every two weeks. Um, If you've not used dupilumab, uh, it's a good reminder uh, and also pimpable content as to how we start this drug. So usually an initial dose of 600 milligrams, just two of the 300 milligram injections, followed by 300 milligrams every other week. And it can be used with or without topical corticosteroids. But in the trials, which were all called solo of some version, which I like because I'm also a Star Wars fan, um, the solo trials were for monotherapy. So it was monotherapy with dupilumab. So they point out that a lot of patients after a period of time on a medication, once they start to improve, especially will start to ask if they have to take the medication forever. Um, Also, you might have to consider cost or adverse effects and think about either decreasing the dose, lowering the dose frequency, or cessation of the medication. Or replacing it with placebo. 
Or I mean, yeah, there's a lot of implications him, here. You know, yeah, it's like if you wave this glow stick over your dermatitis every two days, it's going to get better. Um, so they wanted to look at a trial called Solo Continued, um, which was a 36-week randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase three clinical trial of dupilumab-treated patients who'd achieved either an investigator global assessment score of zero or one or a 75% improvement in the eczema area severity index, the EZ75 at week 16 of the preceding dupilumab monotherapy administered to adult patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, also known as the SOLO1 study. Um, so, and then the SOLO2 study, which was that phase three um, monotherapy trial. So they wanted to see what that data would show us. And they looked over also previous literature about medications for psoriasis, a systematic review of off-label biological Biological treatments in 2012 concluded that continuous treatment with anti-TNF agents and anti-AL12 or 23 agents was necessary for continued disease control and that dose reduction resulted in reduced efficacy. Um, one of the things we always worry about with biologics is that um, the efficacy from rechallenge. so if you start the medicine back, um, they actually did not get equivalent uh, response to their initial response rates. So if you started a patient on the medication, the TNF inhibitor, the 12 or 23 inhibitor, and they were doing great and you stopped the treatment and then you restarted it, you didn't get them back to where they were before you stopped. And so that you might actually lose some response. They noticed that that might be specific to the individual agent. They also noted that beyond the risk of disease flare, uh, another theoretical risk of changing the frequency of administration is increasing the risk of developing anti-drug antibodies. Uh, they worry about reduced efficacy or safety issues uh, as possible sequelae. And the thing that most people do seem to be most worried about, though, is that anti-drug antibody. So uh, they had 637 patients with uh, nine centers participating and had 85% of, sorry, 35% of them taking reduced doses of biologics, either adalimumab, batandercept, ustekinumab, or infliximab, almost always by increasing the dosing interval. And they were able to find in this study um, done by Kereska, Kereskosa, Kereskosa, et al., that they, uh, patients who had lower disease severity scores uh, were more successful in doing this. Uh, another study looked at patients who had achieved complete clearance of their psoriasis and found that if they had patients who were well-controlled, they might be able to either taper or discontinue the drug, and they were more likely to be able to do that if the patients had a lower body mass index or a shorter time to achieve complete clearance of the psoriasis before they started trying to taper it. So I think that that's an interesting thing to bring up. The way they did this was they had patients who had moderate to severe psoriasis who had achieved complete clearance, and then they progressively spaced their dose intervals out by three to four days each month up to a 28-day interval. So they were able to um, kind of gradually space out their dose without severe consequences. There was even a study looking at patients with psoriatic arthritis that were able to taper or discontinue their biological agent. So it is possible potentially in some of these patients to maintain control without adhering strictly to the dosing regimen prescribed by the FDA. So they thought about looking at sorry, at dupilumab because it's controlling a disease which has, is kind of characterized by a waxing and waning course versus something like psoriasis, which tends to be a little bit more constant. Um, 
they wondered if they could potentially reduce the utilization of the medication um, when patients had a state of low disease activity, um, but were also cognizant of the fact that cessation of corticosteroid use can cause worsening disease with a rebound effect. So they weren't sure if this would occur for patients with atopic dermatitis at all. So in that solo continue trial, they wanted to look at uh, maintenance of clinical response and long-term safety in patients who had achieved treatment success in the original solo trials. So they randomized the patients into original dose, less frequent regimen, or drug withdrawal for an additional 36 weeks. And they found that continuing the treatment at the original dose of 300 milligrams weekly or every other week gave better maintenance of response than less frequent dosing and significantly better than placebo for endpoints, which is kind of what you would expect. Um, they also noted that the less frequent dosage regimens produced dose-dependent dose reduction of efficacy, um, but no other unreported safety events. So it's not necessarily dangerous. It just isn't as effective. They also noted that a less frequent treatment schedule, particularly every eight weeks, was associated with a higher risk of skin infections, flares, and rescue medication use than the standard treatment schedule. And that 16 weeks of therapy wasn't enough for patients to achieve remission after cessation of dupilumab. So if you got somebody better with 16 weeks of dupilumab and then stopped their disease would come back. So it wasn't long enough to produce any kind of a remission or anything like that. They did wonder if these patients weren't in a trial and had been able to use steroids or calcineurin inhibitors, if they would have been able to maintain remission. Um, so they thought that potentially that could be more feasible in a real world situation. And they noticed that there was no greater risk other than flares. Um, they worried also about developing antidrug antibodies. They noted that they found antidrug antibodies in 11% of individuals in the placebo group that had been on the dupilumab, done well, and they were completely stopped and given placebo. Uh, they also noticed that the patients that had the dupilumab every week, eight weeks, so kind of off schedule, um, reduced, reduced dosing, had 6% of them develop antidrug antibodies while only... 1% of the patients in the um, weekly group developed antibodies. So the less frequent administration did seem to cause higher immunogenicity, but they still didn't know if this was important because the antidrug levels were, antibodies were low and didn't seem to have a clinical effect. So uh, they point out in the kind of resolution of their discussion that this kind of study is helpful to people who are prescribing dupilumab and the patients because patients may want to or need to reduce their dosage or stop over time. And it's most optimal to continue the two week, every two-week dosing regimen, but you can potentially space it out or decrease it without any unexpected adverse side effects, but just a relatively predictable loss of response. So they had some people with psoriasis on these biologic who did seem to have some kind of durable remission even after they stopped their biologic. Mm -hmm. So you kind of yeah. wonder what the physiology is there. Like mm -hmm. if once the immune system, you're messing with it and interfering with it enough, it just sort of gives up after a year or two and calms down. Mm -hmm. It does make you wonder. And, you know, we know that certain immune-related conditions can harden and can become more difficult to treat the longer that they flare and that the longer you can keep a patient in a remittive state, the more controllable these conditions become. We certainly have seen this with some of the autoimmune bolus disorders. And so it does make you wonder if there's the ability to modify the disease course with aggressive treatment up front with potential eventual tapering or discontinuation of the medication. But I think as with all things with these biologics and these complex immunoreactive diseases, it's all 
very highly individual. So certain patient characteristics may portend a more likely uh, positive prognosis. If you have somebody who is less comorbidities, they're not obese, they don't have metabolic syndrome, they don't have um, exacerbating habits or, or food intake that's potentially causing worsening of inflammation in their body, uh, then they might be a good candidate for decreasing your dose frequency or cessation of therapy. But if you have a patient with more severe disease or other comorbidities that worsen the level of systemic inflammation, it might not be feasible. So I often have parents of kids with eczema, if I'm talking about dupilumab with them, say, well, okay, what? how long does he take it? And I say, well, we don't have a good answer to that. Eczema is considered a lifelong disease. So my normal thinking is that I basically let people go for about a year doing great, and then maybe we can talk about weaning it. Um, in this study, it looks like they did it for four months, and then it didn't. It wasn't worth weaning. But maybe after a year, the yeah. immune, immune system can be more permanently reprogrammed. And that did seem to be that did seem to be one of the things they were hinting towards was that perhaps if they'd had a longer period of treatment with the dupilumab with longer lived disease control, it may have had more of a disease modifying effect than the sixteen weeks that they got treatment for. So, well, that's all we've got for today, guys. So, thanks for sticking around and listening to us. One of our longer episodes, but I'm sure with everybody self isolating and social distancing and all i'm, I'm sure a hundred percent positive that you were hoping for a longer episode this time around <laughs> and i know sometimes we joke around and stuff on this podcast but now that these social isolation and quarantine measures are in place i'll be telling only inside jokes but don't bump bump michelle was I drinking can't. water when i said that i was kind of hoping she was going to do a spit take I wish I could say I made that one up, but uh, I found that oh, one online. It's terrible, but it's also very funny. Love it. So today we learned, what did we learn? We learned that you might be able to use Calcafluor white and a UV flashlight held at the side to more accurately identify fungal elements on your sort of KOH scrapings. We learned that Histology and culture are often discordant when it comes to the results of somebody having an infection. And histology seems to be better for fungi like me, and culture seems <laughs> to be better for gram-negative organisms. We learned about the <laughs> we learned about the placebo and nocebo effects, and how framing is important, and that they these things exist and are powerful, and maybe you can use them to your advantage. We learned a lot about botulinum toxins and how they can be effective for hyperhidrosis and a lot of good physiology and um, mechanism of action type stuff there for anybody studying for an exams. We learned that if you tell parents to put bath oil in their baths, they often don't really do it and it doesn't work anyway. And we learned that weaning dupilumab after four months doesn't seem like it causes a long-term remission, but due to some data from psoriasis, there is hope for the future. Thank you to our institutions, the University of Utah Department of Dermatology for supporting the podcast, and thanks to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle for the podcasts. If you would like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do subscribe. We've been talking lately now that we're all in this global pandemic. Maybe we can release a little bit more content 
since we're seeing fewer patients, maybe we have more time to make some content. Maybe you guys have more interest in listening to it. So no promises, but perhaps you can find some bonus episodes show up every so often, especially if you're subscribed. And of course, if you um, like what you hear, you can leave us glowing reviews. Um, you can also find us online. Yes, that's what I should talk about. Dermospherepodcast.com. It's also a good way to get in touch with us. And you can also see links to all the original articles there. We are also on social media. Uh, Nichelle is in charge of this. So yes. correct me if I'm wrong. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, with Dermosphere Podcast being the handle. That is correct. Yep, that is correct. And I'm trying to find some high points from each episode to highlight on our social media. Um, we also, at our previous episode, included some resident feedback, and we'll look forward to more ways to include that. Uh, so we can get the resident perspective. And Michelle was recently interviewed on one of her local news stations about the coronavirus outbreak and said she was going to post some screen grabs of that on some of our social media accounts. I might even just put the full interview up there because I think it's somewhat relevant. It's just about the different risk populations we're dealing with with this particular thing. And as our understanding of it changes, we need to make sure that information gets out to the public. We should post the whole thing. We probably should put it on the website or something, too. I I will send it to you. So whether there's bonus episodes or not, we'll be back in two weeks. I hope you all stay safe and healthy until then. Mm -hmm.